Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we take small moments in great movies and talk about why they're great. Uh, my name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we've got two, yes, count them, two special guests today. So Michael and Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. And we've got a big crew because today is our James Bond extravaganza or Bond Nanza. I don't know what do you like. It sounds like that should work, but that actually doesn't sound good once I say it out loud. I mean, Bond Mania. Bond it's Mania. kind of an easy one, but yeah. So we've I mean, got you the... need you need a full for films this uh, complex and profound. You really need a full sort of set to dive into them. I think. I really do. And uh, No Time to mm-hmm. Die is coming out Friday, so. This should be out before then, I would think. So Yeah, probably. Yeah, we'll probably get this up Thursday. I, although, if you're listening to this, you already know that. So, I guess... That's true. To labor the Unless you're <laughs> listening to it in the future. Yeah. Sure. You can comment and, and if we got it in on time or not. Does everyone have their tickets for, for No Time to Die already? I Reluctantly. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, it's, it's always a bit iffy getting your tickets in advance in the age of COVID, but... Uh, yeah, the idea of being in a normally being in a opening night crowded theater seems like a good thing, but yeah, in this case it's kind of uh, you, you feel like you're kind of pushing it a bit. That's a fair, a fair concern. <laughs> but here, I feel bad because I asked that hoping like, yeah, enthusiasm is just like I mean yeah, but you know. <laughs> well, I'll share this though because it's really odd. I don't know if you guys uh, saw this at all. Like, I assume you purchased your tickets online. I went and got mine, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm in LA, so a lot of people are blowing up movie theaters uh, just to get tickets all the time. And so I went and I checked my local theater. It's just an AMC. It's at a mall. It's pretty popular. And I got it last week, and I went on to the website, and all tickets available. What? Okay, well, I'll just get it later then, and I won't worry about it now. And I forgot about it. I waited about two days. Oh my God, I got to go get the tickets. I looked, all tickets available. I checked the time, wait, Thursday night, right? The, when was it, the 12th or whatever day it's coming out, 7th. And uh, okay, yeah, that's all correct. So I bought my ticket. I looked at my calendar. I just checked a couple days ago. There's only like three other seats sold. I don't know if just a lot of people are really reluctant to go because of COVID, but like the theater that I'm going to on the Thursday before it comes out is almost completely empty. Which is fine by me, but yeah, it's really bizarre. Mm. Yeah, that is that were the case of mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if my theater was empty, that would be a cause for celebration. I yeah. mean, not not necessarily for the state of film, but for <laughs> my state safety. of you. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a silver lining, you know. But no, I'm gonna show up to that thing wearing a N95 mask, and uh, yeah, I'm hoping I can just like assume that that is like going to keep me covered even in, the, in these crowded theaters that I shouldn't be going to. But... Just bring a riot shield just full on, just like any <laughs> contact is completely... If you get too probably close not... to somebody, just kind of ram yeah. through. They're probably not going to let me in in a hazmat suit, but... Well... They could let you in in like one of those beekeeper suits. You can buy those on Amazon. Maybe like so. a full like diving bell. Yeah. <laughs> you might yeah. have to take off the helmet to show... If you're where, if your state's doing like IDs, which my province is now, um, you have to show your ID and a vaccine passport, which does make me feel 
a little bit safer. I yeah, wish I probably was. just brought that in too. We'll see how yeah. that goes. Well, I actually don't think it'll be that busy where I am, but. No, I think I, I don't think I will be either. Actually, I live in a sort of college town and there's not the theaters like you can't if you're living on campus, you have to bus out to go unless you own a car and a lot of students don't. So they tend not to be too, uh, too busy most nights. So fingers crossed anyway. All right. Oh, so we're, we're talking about Bond. So what we're going to do is we picked a well, we're all picking Bond movies, of course, and I th- we've spanned the eras pretty well, I think. Um, we're going to start right from the very first Bond all the way up to the Greg, uh, Daniel Craig era. So, yeah. Should we get her started? I, I think so. Okay. I mean, this. you're the I one getting we'll, started, Ian. We'll, Take us uh, away. We'll talk about our history with Bond as we go through, uh, which I can do right now. So the first pick is going to be from Dr. No, the very first James Bond movie. And the moment that I'm going with, it's going to seem like a small moment, but I mean, that's the premise of our show. So there we go. Uh, it is. It's, it's uh, the moment where James Bond gets to the Caribbean. And this is Sean Connery's James Bond for anyone who was unclear who the first James Bond was. And he is gets to his room and he's he's doing some stuff around his room just to kind of see what's up, just to kind of see if anyone's going to go in searching his place and whether he should be suspicious or not. And he just he pulls a strand of hair from his head, he licks it and then puts it on the closet door so that later he can see if that hair is still there or not. And if it isn't, then he knows that somebody's been in his room this why this moment stuck out to me i'm not entirely sure but it it i remember the very first time i saw dr noah did and i thought and i think i know the reason why now just to give some of my bond history i know you guys are all big bond fans i never really was growing up i remember seeing goldeneye around the time it came out but that was really it like i wasn't like my dad wasn't really a bond fan and i think if he had been, I would have grown up the movies like a lot of people, um, but he didn't. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I, like five, six, seven years ago, maybe, that I decided to go through all the Bond movies. And when I watched, you know, because I've seen like bits and pieces of all the Brosnan ones and they get pretty silly. <laughs> they get pretty ridiculous. And I realized as I'm watching Dr. No that I like the more scaled down bond as opposed to the goofy action scenes, goofy set pieces, all of that. And something like the simple piece of spy craft just really drew me to it. And I thought maybe bond is for me, like maybe these older bonds is just what I want. And I I just like that really simple. This is James Bond doing what spies do in a, in a simple way, as opposed to a, Let's have flamethrowers shooting out of our our vehicle way, right? So, um, yeah, I just I just thought that was cool, and it really drew me to to Doctor No, especially, but to the early Connery Bonds. They've got a they've got a neat '60s aesthetic too, which I really like as well. But, yeah, I mean Doctor No is before like gadgets really yeah. came into the franchise so in this movie his gadget is a, is a strand of hair yeah <laughs> um 
but I liked it. So they, 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 they hadn't hired Q yet, but uh, he, he would make things easier for Bond. Uh, the, the thing about this scene, um, there's actually like a continuity error in this uh, that this scene causes, which was heavily debated on certain uh, James Bond fan forums back in the day. Uh, because uh, after he sets his uh, the strand of hair on the closet to see if anyone's checked his room, he you can later see him wearing one of the jackets that was in that closet. Um, oh my goodness, who picks that and out? Before before he comes back <laughs> to uh, check check that it's uh, been tampered with. So obviously he may have just like changed at some point off screen and then reset his trap. So whether or not it's a true continuity error was a matter of much, much, very nerdy debate. Um, did it. I, I will say that a trap like that, you could do infinite amounts of time. I mean, uh, Blofeld yeah, couldn't. Yeah, Blofeld could not. He could not set this trap. But James Bond himself could set this trap and reset it as many times as he wanted to. It's true. Logically, James- yes. But within the sort of... <laughs> uh, the grammar of film, you're supposed to set it once and then... They don't yeah. want to show the spy messing up. Damn it! Well, you can't, I mean, you can't use Chekhov's gun twice. <laughs> I I don't know if it's the same scene, but uh, I think it might be where Bond orders coffee from where he's staying, and he orders it very black. But then in the next movie, when he gets a coffee, it's medium sweet. What am I supposed to make of that? I mean, Bond is very famously not someone who likes to change his beverage orders very much. So I mean. Unless you're a These movies actually suck, and I don't like them anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all falling apart. We're only yeah, on the have first a nice movie. night, guys. Oh dear. No. Yeah. Do you guys That's like Doctor No? Or are you Doctor No fans? I love Doctor No. Um, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's it's the starting point, so it's not all there yet. But I mean, you have to respect it. It 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 got it got the ball moving. Um, I mean, like. Back in the day, I, it was probably one of my lesser liked movies, especially of the Connery era. But yeah, you, you come to respect it. You see sort of where it's coming from. Yeah. And I mean, to add to your point, Ian, about it being like just a really stripped down, uh, simple spy story. I like that it's just a very straightforward detective story. I mean, I'd probably like a little bit more globetrotting because that's always fun. But I like that it's just Bond goes to investigate a thing and unravels um a scheme and it's just very it's very simple it's not really a mystery that it's it's not super uh it's not the most well written of all mysteries you're you're gonna find in cinema but there's something appealing about um the process of uncovering uh dr no's villainy yeah i think it has it has the start of a lot of the elements that would stay like i think a lot of people say that you know, it's missing a lot of elements that we look for in James Bond, but I mean, it's got the kind of ridiculous over-the-top villain. It's got the exotic locale when in the Caribbean. It's got uh, the Bond girl, right? Like, Honey Rider is a pretty classic kind of Bond girl. She may not be the, the best out there, but um, she's kind of hits that high, iconic point, I suppose. Uh, I think there are a lot of iconic elements that you don't have things like the gadgets and, and all that, but there's some good building blocks in Dr. No. Well, mm-hmm. Speaking of starting out, I have a question for you guys. Have any of you ever read any of the Ian Fleming books? 
Yes. All, okay. All of them. You've read all of them. Nice. Uh, well, I, I read them when I was very young. It's been a pretty long time, but yeah. Yeah. I read them when I was super young too. And I remember, I don't remember like what the actual plot of Dr. No is about, but I can only imagine when they're, when they're thumbing through the books, because Dr. No is not the first book published. And when they're thumbing through the books, like, let's see what we can, what we have to work with. And I'll just tell you, spoiler alert for anyone who's planning on reading Dr. No, uh, the end of Dr. No, Dr. No tries to feed James Bond to an octopus, like this giant octopus. It's a squid. Oh, is it a squid? Okay. It's a squid. Um, and he somehow escapes and he kills Dr. No by, uh, by burying him in a pile of bat guano uh, mm-hmm. from like Ace Ventura, What Nature Calls. And um, that's yeah, what that's... invented bat guano was Ace Ventura. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how we all know it from. And so I can only imagine the people who are like reading the book, like, okay, we're going to take this. We're going to take this. All right. Squid. Nope. Can't do it. Bat guano. Uh-uh. We're going to do something different. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm not quite sure what made them go with Dr. No first, but uh, yeah, there are some creative uh, liberties they took with the film versus, uh, you know, when, when it comes to adapting. Yeah. Book. Probably like, for a good reason. Yeah. Like the books, like if you think some of these movies are problematic, so to speak, <laughs> these books are just uh, don't read them if you're under like 20 <laughs> and it's yeah. 2021. There's uh <laughs> Oh boy. Mm-hmm. I've only read uh, From Russia With Love, which from what I've gathered is actually one of the more respectable novels. Um, I did it for my 10th grade, like summative assignment. We had to read a book and then watch the film and do like a comparative analysis. And of all the films I could have chosen, I was like, let's analyze From Russia With Love. I'm sure there's lots of meaty subtext and themes I can talk about. Um, but that was the only book that I of his that I've read. So. Yeah, I mean the the movies are more faithful to most of the books than you. Th- Some of them they're not faithful at all, but the ones where they are sort there's more taken from the books than you'd think, even in some of the later ones, like um, uh, like The Living Daylights, even like that's based on a short story, and that whole like bit at the beginning with the snipers is basically the short story. And they expand on it from there. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I know from Russia with Love was pretty faithful. Like, I think the film added the like the helicopter scene and the boat chase, um, and it cut some of the more overt uh, lesbian overtones to um, Kleb, um, which was the right call because it's not very graceful in the novel at all. But uh, otherwise, is actually pretty close to. Oh, and then in the in the book, it's actually Smirsh and not Spectre, and I think that was a smart change as well yeah only three of the books are for specter and um but they then kind of retroactively made a bunch of other ones where it's smirsh also specter so mm-hmm. um like the whole point of specter really is that it's a way to kind of distance the movies from the cold war a bit um by making it this other organization um which i really think it was, was christoph waltz all along anyway exactly yeah. I right. think it was a good call, personally. <laughs> I, I like that it's distant. Not the Christoph Waltz thing. Uh, I have more mixed feelings about that. But I think it's a smart call to distance it. In a way, I find the films actually hold up a bit better than if they were just straight, like, anti-Soviet movies. I don't know. There's... Yeah, and, like, the trick they use in some of the later Bond movies is the Soviets are kind of the bad guys, but it's only because there's, like, a rogue general that's kind of 
mm-hmm. doing all the real bad stuff and the, the the like actual soviet government is trying to keep them under control as well mm-hmm. yeah. yep okay well let's uh let's move on from connery i can't believe i'm the only one who picked a connery movie yeah, overrated no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so um michael you got the next pick all right off. so from uh your stripped down realistic espionage bond to my roger moore epic um <laughs> my scenes from uh the spy who loved me um it's a scene relatively early in the movie um where uh bond is chasing this kind of d-tier henchman just kind of a big bald guy up to a roof and they get into a pretty standard little scuffle on the roof and then bond kind of shoves him off by a ledge but he's still sort of teetering on that ledge and he like grabs bond's uh necktie uh not so much to try to hurt bond pulled bond down with him but just kind of have a desperate like attempt to not fall and bond like instead of helping him up he like demands the guy answer where whatever the MacGuffin is and doesn't matter he's just he's at, he's interrogating him and using this precarious position he's in to get some answers and the guy does answer he says where the MacGuffin is and instead of pulling him up to reward him for that bond just like swipes his tie and sends the guy to off plummeting to his death <laughs> um and uh so the reason i picked this scene um it's not even so much the scene itself. It's more, I wanted to kind of use this as a launching pad to talk about uh, Roger Moore's take on Bond in general, uh, because I think the scene kind of goes against the usual public perception of what Roger Moore as James Bond was all about. The usual perception is that uh, Roger Moore kind of made Bond goofy, so to speak, that uh, his movies were silly and, and they were silly, but that I think has less to do with anything Roger Moore is doing as an actor and more just kind of the direction that the series was going to be going anyway. If you look at kind of the last Sean Connery movies. Um, but that's not to say I don't think there is a difference between what Roger Moore does as Bond and what Sean Connery does as Bond or what Daniel Craig has as Bond does as Bond. Um, but if you look at this scene, he is a cold killer, just like the rest of them. He is probably colder than like Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig generally feels bad about the people he kills. Roger Moore, not so much. He's uh, murdering this guy. And he's, he's doing it partly to avenge the death of the woman that this henchman killed in kind of a rather strange scene leading up to this where the, just the woman like sacrifices herself, even though she's sort of in on the plot but let's not get into that she also um, just met bond and it's like so like dramatic with like no and it's like you just met this guy like <laughs> right uh but that aside uh i do want to like talk about roger moore um because i have sort of a i have what i'd call a unified theory of james bond acting i want to <laughs> run past you guys see if this makes any sense at all um so the way I see it, there's two different ways to play James Bond. There's the Connery Craig way, and then there's the more Brosnan way. Uh, Lazenby and Dalton are a little hard to fit into this just because they didn't have as many movies to kind of establish themselves with. Uh, but roughly speaking, I'd say Dalton is closer to the Connery Craig, and Lazenby is an Australian model who conned his way into starring in a major franchise. Um, <laughs> But um, king shit right there. So uh, 
the Connery Craig way, you could call it the Fleming way, is that so James Bond is a character largely defined by these kind of lifestyle signifiers, the suits, the cars, the watches, the fancy drinks. And in many ways, I think the Connery and Craig version of him are, they like those things, but they like them more just as vices. And I think those versions of the character emphasize the fact that Bond is this orphan who was kind of recruited by uh, MI6 to be a killer, that he's deep down, he's more of a thug than this like rich guy that he's really just kind of he's doing, all, have, has all these accessories of wealth more just to sort of infiltrate these high society places where these supervillains are, that deep down he's really more of a killer than a gentleman. Whereas I, th and, and in many ways also, I think uh, that version of Bond is less of a true believer in the sort of cause of the MI6 so much as he is in this job because he's attracted to danger in a way. Uh, whereas the Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan versions, I think are a bit more legitimately comfortable within the sort of British establishments. They still have that background of being orphans, but I don't think it haunts them. And I think they are closer to being kind of true believers in uh, crown and country, so to speak. Um, and they're a lot more comfortable in all that like fancy stuff in a way. And in a lot of ways that kind of makes them more of a conventional action hero. Um, and I'm not saying this critically at all. I, I quite like what they're doing. It's just a very different take, but it's a different in a way that is a little more complicated than I think um, the kind of conventional wisdom suggests. Uh, am I onto something here? <laughs> I think it's a really good actually interpretation of like, you know, kind of how to sort the, the bonds into two broad categories. I think it's pretty accurate. Um, and certainly, yeah, Moore and Brosnan in particular feel much more comfortable with the uh, sort of sophisticated, suave aspects of it where, yeah, the reason Connery and Craig and especially Connery are so appealing is that technically they have those trappings, but they are at heart like a thuggish brute. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, it's the real reason why I think Connery still holds up as the best, not just because he was the first, although that certainly gives him an edge, but it's that contradiction. Um but yeah, I think it's a good read. And I like that, first of all, I love that you highlighted this scene because I want to say every single time I've included The Spy Who Loved Me in a video, I show this clip because <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and talking about how cold-blooded it is, is I think worth noting because I find when people talk about more, they always gravitate to uh, Fear Eyes Only and the scene where Bond kicks the car over the ledge. It's mm -hmm. like, it was so out of character for him. It was so cold-blooded. And yet the probably most iconic Roger Moore Bond film also has a rather uh, <laughs> cold-blooded kill here that in some ways is more sinister because for your eyes only kind of lets him off the hook a bit where you, you see the car starting to fall anyway. And it's like, well, I mean, Bond didn't really kill him. This also, guy, he just kills. Right. And the guy in for your eyes only, that guy is really bad. Like he's yeah. messing with him through the whole movie. He, he had it coming, but this guy, like he's not, he's just a henchman number four, you know? <laughs> and like uh interestingly enough there's a uh, there's a youtube video out there which uh counts uh every single time james bond has killed someone and to see which of the james bond actors has killed the most people 
and it's Roger Moore. <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. and it, that's that's partly kind of juiced by that scene in uh, Octopussy where he blows up that whole hangar. Yeah, but uh, that had some numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he he he's uh, he, he shoots people just as much as anyone. Well, he well, has a something... license to do it. I mean, that's true. Yeah, I, I don't feel bad about driving people. You know. <laughs> Ian and I both just very easily empathizing with murder. Like, it's fine. He has permission. I mean, they are all bad. It's true. It's okay to kill people when they're bad. Um, (laughs) The other thing that I find fun about this scene and is Bond in general, like people talk about the quips and, uh, and it's in Connery as well, but more is kind of probably the most associated with the jokey bits and yeah, as, as you point out, like Daniel Craig seems to feel bad about killing people, but Roger Moore being jokey about it, it's actually way more sinister. There's even a, I was thinking about this, especially I watched it with an audience recently, but in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, when uh, during the second ski chase, one thug just gets like caught up in some sort of snow blowing machine and is just eviscerated and the snow turns red and essentially his blood splatters all over the snow. It's really quite violent in its own way and then it cuts to bond like he had a lot of guts like jesus man <laughs> yeah he, he was a real pioneer of the post-mortem one-liner uh <laughs> arnold schwarzenegger really just kind of stole that from him mm-hmm. that's why he and didn't God... care too much about killing people he was looking forward to it so he could say his next line yeah he's, he's got a workshop his comedy the job yeah <laughs> And you got to hand it to uh, George Lazenby, the only Bond to go through the whole movie with a sinus infection, because the whole time he just, he just kind of sounds like this. What's his first line? Um, uh, it never happened to the other guy. Like It's not oh, technically his first line. Okay, well, in the, in the, in the <laughs> open, I don't know his first line. I haven't seen that in a long time. But uh, His know. first line is good morning. Wow. Yep. My name is Bond. Just so you oh. know right from the start, it's it's him. Don't worry. Or or not, not good morning, just good morning hey (laughs) leave Lazenby alone that might be somebody here's favorite bond movie we don't know he's the (laughs) oldest one still alive you have to show respect that's true the fact that depresses me greatly (laughs) that we're losing them but yeah i i I love the scene i'm so glad you you chose it um and I, i like the points you make about uh the sort of unified theory of James Bond acting. Is that what you called it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's a good term. Yeah. I think you could throw Timothy Dalton into the, uh, into the Connery and Craig camp, even though he was in a couple movies, but right. I, I think, yeah, I, I think it would be, a, I think it'd be fair to do that. It'll be okay. Yeah. My one hesitation with that is when I, when I think of Timothy Dalton, I think he's doing something a little bit different in that he is probably the most realistic of all of these all the Bond actors, his movies are every bit as ridiculous as the rest, but his acting seems a bit more human, a bit more naturalistic in a way. He seems less like James Bond, the icon, and more like a bit more like the way an average person might react to some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, You could pretty credibly argue, I think, that he's not necessarily giving the best performance, but he's the best pure actor to play the character. Um, I'm not sure I'd make that argument necessarily. And it kind of depends yeah. on what you're looking for in an actor, but I, I don't know. I think he probably has the most like Shakespeare credit out of all of them as far as like British stage acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I'd, I'd love to see Roger Moore do like Macbeth, but 
alas, it's not the world we live in. <laughs> well, I didn't see alas. any of the other James Bonds doing Beautician and the Beast, so. Oh, That's man. a good point. That's a low blow, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, come on. He's not here to defend himself. Well, that's why you got to take Timothy the Dalton, if you want to come yeah. on the show okay. yeah. <clears throat> cool right. um well um, we can jump into the next roger moore movie more, more more yeah i mean you can never have too much so i chose a scene from moonraker uh which is probably an odd movie to highlight and even more so the fact that i'm not going with anything that has to do with like outer space I'm choosing a very short, very uh, simple scene where um, basically the villain Hugo Drax kills a uh, female employee who had uh, had a liaison with Bond earlier. And it's a classic Bond trope, the sort of sacrificial lamb, which is the, the woman Bond hooks up with in the first act, usually to get some information out of. And then she's pretty swiftly thereafter killed by the villain. And the character herself, I think her name is like Kareen, is not anything particularly noteworthy or special but then there's this scene where Drax kills her and what he does is basically Mr. Burnstyle unleashes the hounds and she is running through the forest for her life and it's shot with these sort of shafts of light pouring in from behind the trees and the John Barry score it's exciting but it's also very ominous and foreboding and kind of sinister and i remember just re-watching all the movies about a year ago and watching the sequence being like this is fantastic like i had completely forgotten about the scene but it is genuinely like really tense and i feel so bad for this character even though she's otherwise kind of a nothing burger but for this one moment i'm so invested in her and especially i think about comparing that to like in something like you only live twice where the sacrificial lamb is just like dropped into a tank with a big shark which i suppose is gruesome in its own way but feels very like Light piranhas in that. Is it piranhas? There is. There are piranhas in it. I give, there might be a different scene that I'm not thinking of. Maybe some sort of uh, fish being <laughs> something that lives in water kills somebody. Um, but like it, it's violent in its own way, but it feels very like cartoony and sound kind of safe. But here, and it's not gratuitous. You don't see any blood or anything. But just it's like a person hunted down by dogs and then just killed in the woods um i don't there's something about that that's that sticks in a way that some of these deaths don't and i also just kind of wanted to highlight it because one of the things i've come to realize about these films is that with few exceptions even the bad ones have their moments and i'll defend moonraker as not being actually that bad i think it has its charms but it's one that is easy to make fun of and mock it's the one where bond goes to space it doesn't get much sillier than that but I think even this really silly, ridiculous movie has some scenes in it that are genuinely really good and worth seeking out. So, and I just really love the music in that scene. I listen to the score sometimes kind of just to hear that track. So. Indeed, that is a great scene in the middle of a movie that's probably not worth worthy of it. Um, <laughs> I mean, like Hugo Drax out of all of the Bond villains is the one that most like, suffered from having a flair for the dramatic like it's 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 an accepted bond trope that the villain will try to like murder bond in some stupid slow way that bond escapes from and lives to fight another day most of the villains fall for this once hugo drax falls for it like several times um and 
Uh, this is the one person he actually succeeds in killing through one of these elaborate means. Well, it worked um, once, so it could work again. Right, so he tries killing Bond <laughs> with the snake. He tries killing Bond with the dude on the gondola who's <laughs> pops out of a coffin to throw knives at him, which is... <laughs> I call, I call that other guy D-grade henchman. The, the gondola guy is Z-grade. Uh, if that had worked, that. though, that would have been the most awesome shit in the world. True, true. So he, he tries to kill Bond by putting him under the rocket. He, it, just over and over again. Well, you bring you up imagine some if that was Bond's there. end? That was like how they ended his character. <laughs> just cuts to credits. <laughs> Drax would have been like, I can't believe that worked. That's brilliant. Mm. The least probable one panned out. I will say though, it's funny you, you made that point about it's a good scene in a movie that probably doesn't deserve it because there's a couple of moments I think in this film that could qualify. Maybe not a couple, but there's at least one other, which is the opening stunt of just absolutely, yeah, like oh my god, that's incredible. I still like I, I watched um, Point Break recently. I need to make sure I don't say Point Blank, um, which also has like very famous skydiving scenes and they're not really that much they're not better than what moonraker did and right and you know. like the way they shot that's crazy they, they basically just did it they did they had people dive out of a plane like a hundred times to get each shot um it's it's kind of crazy how like much they were willing to put people in danger over and over again to make these movies to make moonraker <laughs> <laughs> right which, oh, man. I, I mean, the movie did make bank, so it was, it was worth the investment, but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's James Bond, though. Like, I think it's why the series endures is like, even when the, uh, you know, the adventure's kind of shaky, there's usually at least a couple moments where like, oh, that kind of made it worth it. Yeah, I, I think that this is kind of something that some of the more recent Bond fans kind of don't get. Like, the thing about the Bond franchise is, when the movies are bad when a bad one comes out you don't need to stress over it too much because there's going to be another one they 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 always they come the good ones come the good ones go but the, the series is forever you don't need to worry so much and it's kind of a problem that the current people making these movies have is that they think one bond movie being bad is going to completely derail them it, it's not in despite their best efforts it, it's happened to them <laughs> as well and it didn't derail anything yeah we've got a few uh, under our belt now right like there's quite a few bad bonds already we don't have to worry about mm -hmm. this series being perfect you just put that out of your out of your mind see the the problem is every time one of them comes out on dvd or on video or something there's always a quote from a critic that says the best bond yet and i get thrown off every time wait a minute <laughs> thought the last one was the best bond and now this one's the best Bond. Which one's the best? Every single time. Quantum of Solace, right there on the DVD. Somewhere like the best Bond yet. That critic needs to be killed. There had to have been some Paola going on that with that one. <laughs> I truly cannot imagine. Because, like, you know what? I know Die Another Day's, like, DVD famously has, like, at least one version of the DVD. These movies get released on physical media, like, once every six months. But um, has, like, that the best Bond ever displayed in, like, big bold lettering and you know what i'm not going to defend it as a good movie but i can sort of get someone watching it and being like this is the best one yet i can kind of get it i can understand mm. it if it's the first bond movie they've seen mm. all i know is when that, i was eight years old i thought it was pretty good <laughs> yeah it's kind of a, depends what you're looking for in a bond movie some people 
sometimes myself included, really kind of want that kind of silly adventure James Bond movie. And eh, still probably too many things wrong with that movie to really <laughs> use that as the defense. But there, it, there's a certain way you can look at that movie and say, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's giving me what I need. Mm-hmm. That was my Moonraker, like, come to Jesus moment where, like, I used to think it was when I was younger that it was, like, the worst one because it was stupid. And then I'm like, well, they're all kind of stupid. This one's kind of fun <laughs> in its stupidity, at least. So it's not that bad. So, and again, any movie that has John Barry doing the music can't be all bad. Although Diamonds Are Forever sure tries its best. <laughs> yeah, nobody picked that one for this podcast. No. No. All right, great. I almost did you? for last week um, for when we did the, and I know, Greg, you were going to talk about it later, but when we did the moments we like for movies we don't, but I've talked about the elevator fight scene enough times. <laughs> People know why I like that. So. All right, Greg, why don't you take us to a new Bond? Okay, well, I am going to jump forward in time a bit to License to Kill. Now, I totally understand that this is really kind of a divisive Bond uh, some people really like it. I know a lot of people don't, but I really embrace it because to me, it does try to break out of that mold a little bit. Not completely. It still has a lot of the hallmarks of a Bond movie. It's got M, you know, setting things up a little bit. It's got Q doing his thing, which is always fun. But uh, for me, Bond is the best. I always really embrace Bond the most when we start to see the human side of him. Like I know a a lot of people really enjoy Casino Royale where we get to get a a front row seat to that inexperience and the hubris that almost brings him down, but then he corrects himself. You know, that's kind of neat and it's an interesting new direction. But uh, I like License to Kill because it's just a straight up revenge movie and revenge is a pretty strong motivator in, uh, in Bond and just in a lot of movies in general. And the scene that I picked was when uh, one of Bond's little partners, his sidekicks, his name's Sharky, he's helping out. And uh, when Bond is on board this, this yacht, he sees this other boat coming up alongside it and they've killed Sharky. And not only have they killed him, but they're hanging him upside down like a fish from a hook, like just really degrading. And, and uh, when Bond sees this happen, he walks out of the door and he sees these guys stepping off the boat and Bond picks up a spear gun. It's, I think it's one of those electric spear guns. And he shoots him. Before he shoots him, he says, compliments to Sharky. And he just shoots this guy. He was not fighting with this guy. He was not arguing with this guy. He was not getting any uh, information out of this guy. He wasn't chasing him. He just sees him and he picks up a spear gun and he kills him. And then he jumps into the water and he steals a scuba gear. And then there's a whole other action scene. But uh, yeah, that it was to me, it's really uh, a savage moment in Bond. And, you know, you can see uh, a bunch of other uh, little scenes peppered throughout the series where Bond's taking revenge on people, or you could say he's killing some people in cold blood. There's a famous scene in The Spy Who Loved Me where he's on top of a roof and the guy's holding his tie. And I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, um, but you know, for, for me, it's uh, those scenes kind of bring this sort of edge to Bond. Uh, I don't want to say I can relate to it or anything, but it kind of it kind of brings it out a little bit. And this one especially because it it just felt so savage. And like here's a guy who's who's just hell bent on revenge, uh, especially considering how his best friend was fed to a shark. And 
they murdered the friend's wife. And it just, uh, and it's to, in, in a way to me, it just kind of brought uh, a layer to him that you don't see that often in Bond. I mean, you see it, but it just really emphasized, it brought it to another degree. And uh, and then you kind of see that the, the whole movie is not quite like that scene, but it is just a, a, a primarily revenge-based movie. And it sounds simple, but I think for me, License to Kill works. It works as a movie that's trying to break out of the Bond mold, like I said, and it uh, takes it into another direction. And I get that a lot of people don't gravitate towards that. And I know that there are a lot of people who really don't like License to Kill, but uh, for me, it's kind of about the simplicity and I think it, and I think it really worked. And I think it worked well for, I think Timothy Dalton was a great bond to, to use for that, uh, for that particular film like that. That would not have worked with, with Roger Moore. That wouldn't, I don't even think it would have really worked with uh, Pierce Brosnan that much. I think Timothy Dalton was like this, this is a great actor paired with the right movie. That uh, Connery could have made it back yeah. in the day. But... Mm-hmm. I would have loved to see more try to be honest. And I don't mean that, in a, and I don't mean that, in, I guess it sounded derisive. I didn't mean it to. I genuinely would be curious. Because, um, I mean, you know, Michael, you had like a very like sophisticated take on like Bond actors. My uh, more fanboyish take is I like every actor who plays James Bond. I think they're all lovely, um, which is maybe just me being like deluded. I don't know. But I, I agree with you on five of the six. Leave Lazenby alone, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Turning that into a meme. He voiced oh. King on Batman Beyond. He can do no wrong. Did he really? I didn't know that. Oh, hmm. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, where do you guys land on uh, License to Kill? I'm, I'm always curious when I hear Bond fans because uh, just hear their opinions. I, I think it's pretty cool. The chase scene with the tanker trucks at the end is awesome. Um, it's cool that Benicio Del Toro is in it. It's um, chopped up. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a pretty nasty scene at one point where he announces to Felix that uh, his now deceased wife got a really good honeymoon. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's that's really pretty dark if you think about it. That's one of the darker moments in uh, the whole series. The, The whole movie is really kind of the point where it starts getting, I think it's could arguably be one of the most violent bond movies out of all of them mm-hmm. like not necessarily in terms of body count but just uh there's some kind of nasty stuff to it uh it was the first bond movie to be pg-13 which partly just has to do with the fact that the rating had just been invented but um it was actually cut down a bit to avoid an r i, I don't think too many other bond movies that's really the case i'd love to um, see that missing footage uh, I don't know if it still it, exists. Oh, it, but... it does exist. Oh, um, yeah? Wow. In fact, I, th- I think they kind of secretly just put it back in the movie in one of the recent releases. Um, like the head exploding in the tank, maybe? That'd right. Be the trick. Yes, that, 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 there was a cut point. in that scene. You can, you can actually, you can, if you go on YouTube, there's a side-by-side comparison. I'm going to have to check that out. Because I actually, I was uh, scrubbing through footage uh, editing, and I saw that, and I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty extreme for... Good old 007. Um, yeah, I like yeah. License to Kill a lot. I mean, you can definitely see the Scarface influence in it, which is <laughs> yeah. weird since that movie was considered a failure at the time. But um, I don't know, it, 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 its influence was pretty swift despite that. Um, 
so it's basically Bond versus Scarface, which is kind of crazy. But I mean, Sanchez, the villain, is still very much a Bond villain. Like mm-hmm. he has the same kind of sense of theatricality. It's just that he's not, you know, a Russian agent. Yeah, he's a drug kingpin. They do a pretty good For job sort of blending. Yeah, they do a good job blending the worlds. Um, it's also it's interesting, Greg. You highlighted sort of a Bond revenge kill because there's another one early in the film where uh, where he throws the suitcase at Big Ed from Twin Peaks after he betrays uh, Felix, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Keep it, old buddy." And he throws it to him, and he falls in the water. Like, which I thought at first was the moment you were going for, but um, same basic idea. So Bond well, had a lot of like very satisfying revenge kills. And I mean, the, the last one in the movie, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I thought of that scene, too, but, like, even even that scene, like, it was kind of after an action scene, and I think there was some banter between them at first, uh, and then he finally, you know, throws a suitcase on top of him. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the other guy, the one I mentioned previously when he shot him with a spear gun, like, that just, that just kind of hit me, like, this guy did nothing. Well, I mean, he killed Sharky, but, like, well, for all we know, he could have been just driving the boat. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, he just, he just steps off the boat, and there's Bond. And then Bond just shoots him. Nothing. Yeah, you, know? you, you kind of get the impression in there that that's not like part of Bond's plan to escape from this boat either. He just, he sees this guy, he sees the spear. He's going to take that opportunity to avenge his friend. Mm-hmm. Like it probably actually just kind of hurt his own escape chances because he's give, <laughs> he gave away his position. Yeah. And then he had to go like, you know, go on the sub and there was hiding from the scuba divers and then to shoot the plane. Yeah. That was probably not part of the plan. He probably just wanted to easily escape and, and make no fuss, but Hey, he's Bond. He can do whatever he wants. He had to kill more kill. people. Yeah. He he his... Right there in the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was exactly. going to say though, has his license been revoked at that point? I think it has. Not according to MGM. He's breaking the rules. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that Bond. Come on. Yep. I mean, let's be real. License to kill is—they made that up. Like, <laughs> what? I hope that's not a real thing. British agents <laughs> do not. not. British agents are gonna shoot someone. They're they're gonna shoot someone. They're they're not gonna do the paperwork. Like, <laughs> I am stunned to hear that something from these movies is fictional, not based on the strictest realities of spycraft. Local cops saying, "Okay, you're coming downtown." Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, 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 no. Look at this. License. Okay, well, let him go, guys. I just want to apply for a license yep. to kill. I mean, you know, you'd show that to JW Pepper and uh, <laughs> you get away. <laughs> a secret agent. Oh, he's so good. And by good, I mean the worst thing. People talking about Jar Jar Binks being annoying, but Sheriff JW Pepper is way worse. I'm glad he made an appearance on this podcast. I mean, he, I, I like him in that movie. Like, he makes sense in Live and Let Die. He makes sense in Live and Let Die. He wouldn't cannot... make sense in any of the other ones, including the other one he showed up in. But... I can't believe they brought him back. I was just like, what? <laughs> all, all the I characters mean, people actually like that never come back. It wasn't you know, he like... to bring back. Wasn't I mean, he was like on pandering. vacation or something? Right. He just he happened was... to run into Bond? Yes, these, the southern sheriff was vacationing in Thailand to perfectly logical you have to imagine that they were riding this movie probably thinking like hey we can have him in every bond movie and people will love it you know i feel like too that character is probably like a horrific racist so i don't see him going and like visiting other cultures like that's (laughs) the other (laughs) 
even if he wasn't, he's not going to go to Thailand. Air travel was not cheap back then. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. He couldn't have been on the space station. Look, oh, come on. Okay, that would have been amazing if he showed up in Moonraker in space. I mean, that's just, well. that's, I mean, Moonraker basically did that with Jaws. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't have two weirdo yokel people. Still, uh, I can dream. Twenty twenty. <laughs> All right, should we jump to the next Bond? Uh, yeah, sure. let's, let's Michael, do this. Your pick. Okay, so my pick is from GoldenEye, which uh, it's one of my favorite Bond movies, like top five. And I always, I'm always questioning that because I, I worry nostalgia is driving it because like that, that movie was sort of the hotness right when I was first getting involved in Bond fandom. Also because of the N64 game that really... Uh, burns certain scenes and music cues <laughs> from that movie into my head. Yeah, I thought it was bold that they based the movie off of a video game. And, uh, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Um, but no, but every time I do uh, uh, look at this movie action. again, <laughs> whenever I do look at that movie again, I am renewed in my belief that it is legitimately one of the best. Um. Totally. And a scene that illustrates that uh, is the scene. Uh, it's kind of a big scene in the movie, really, because it's it's the revelation of the twist that Alec Trevelyan from the first scene is spoiler the villain. He's uh, Janus. Um, but I'm going to look at just a couple specific details from the scene that I think really stand out. Um, but let me back up a little bit. Uh, so. Me and I believe Dan uh, from various uh, endeavors have made it known that we have some issues with the Daniel Craig movies, specifically Skyfall and the way they sort of make metatextual points about the Bond franchise in a way that's kind of intrusive and lazy. And I don't know what the other two of you think about this, but uh, one of the reasons I like GoldenEye so much is because I think in many ways it does what these Daniel Craig movies are trying to do, but it does it in a much less intrusive, much less, frankly, annoying way, uh, which is that it's, it's commenting on the Bond series. Specifically, it's trying to question what relevance James Bond is going to have now that the Cold War is over. Um, and it, it's not exactly a subtle theme in the movie. It's, uh, as you'll notice in this scene, which is set in a graveyard of discarded uh, Soviet propaganda statues. Um, and so the movie is very much kind of giving Bond a movie to exercise whatever ghosts and demons he has from the Cold War so he can move on to be an agent in the 21st century. And so he's meeting Trevelyan in this gigantic symbol of the transition of world geopolitics and that's not the only place where it's being meta and deconstructionist though like the uh one of the first things that trevelyan says to him after he uh reveals himself is uh what's the matter james no glib remark no pithy comeback and this, this is kind of a thing you see in various parts of the movie there's um a little bit later, he's lecturing uh, Oromov on what goes into a truly villainous uh, interrogation. And then there's the scene earlier in the movie where M calls James Bond a 
sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. Um, so there's a lot of these little things in there like this, but the rest of the movie just feels like a James Bond adventure, a really good one. And it ultimately kind of, it doesn't rest on those sorts of things. It's, uh, and um, I think this is a good, this scene's a good example of that. There's other little things in there that uh, I want to call attention to. Going back to my unified theory of James Bond acting, um, I want to kind of talk about the Pierce Brosnan side of the more Brosnan style Bond, uh, because Brosnan is kind of, has the same thing going where he's a bit more comfortable with kind of the British establishment, but he's more in a sort of more cosmopolitan kind of Tony Blair version of that <laughs> establishment. Uh, he's wearing those very 90s kind of suits and he seems very comfortable and relaxed in them. Um, and also uh, when I say that he seems to be more of a true believer in um, sort of crown and country, so to speak, that is directly addressed in the scene. Trevelyan uh, calls him uh, her, Majesty's, her Majesty's loyal terrier defender of the, the so-called faith. And he also brings up the fact that Bond is an orphan, which is, you know, a big part of all of these comparisons. But when he brings up the fact that Bond is an orphan, he's comparing it to his own orphanhood and saying that Bond had it relatively easy because his parents just died in a climbing accident. There isn't this whole crazy backstory with the Cossacks. Um, so that's kind of the main points I want to bring out from this scene. Um, aside from that, just looking at it as a scene, it's beautifully atmospheric. It's uh, in the N64 game, it's, this, it's the scene where you get the shotgun, which is really one of the better Ooh. weapons in that, which is underused. So that's another reason it stands out. Uh, but as just a moment where you take in this plot twist, which you know could be a very bland kind of exposition scene, that's just about that, but they give you all these other needle details to, you know, kind of really bring the scene to life. Well, game, it kind of, I, I watched this once I saw you put the scene and I watched it. It kind of gives off a uh, third man vibes. I kind of found too, a little yeah, bit. The way he kind of emerges yeah, from the shadows. Kind of lit. Yeah. Yeah. The old friend. Yeah. And Dan, who's he's you... evil, but he's so cool. You're kind of like, I'm kind of with him. Uh, I mean, the one the one place where I'm going to say this guy is kind of full of shit, like he's, he's giving Bond crap for uh, having the timer set at three minutes instead of six. This dude was shot point blank in the head with a pistol. Like <laughs> the notion that he's even alive at all because of that is ridiculous. He is in no position to be lecturing someone about the length of the bomb. Yeah, come on, dude. <laughs> Well, I remember watching this when I was a kid. You know, GoldenEye was one of the ones that I watched a thousand times too. And because uh, I come from an era, you know, pre DVD, pre streaming, you had the VHS that your parents were nice enough to buy for you. And you watched the crap out of that thing until you got another tape. Maybe it was a weekend when your babysitter was coming over. Maybe you had a birthday coming up. And then you got another tape and you could watch a crap out of that too. So GoldenEye was one that I watched a bunch. And I just remember them talking about the Cossacks. And I was, ooh, I was sixth grade or something. I was watching the movie and I'm like, huh, well, no idea who those guys are, whatever. And then fast forward to like, I was like maybe a senior in college, maybe after. 
and I'm watching Goldeneye again. I'm like, oh man, this movie rocks. And they mentioned the Cossacks again. I'm like, wait, I still don't know who the damn Cossacks are. I feel like a freaking idiot. And then I go, so it actually like, you know, motivated me to go look up the, you know, Britain and the Cossacks. So thank you, Goldeneye, for for encouraging that education on my part. But you, you know, said was, these movies aren't educational. Exactly. But um, yeah, it is a, a very personal scene too, especially uh, you know, there's always the scenes where uh, Bond sees the villain. They're not going at it right off the bat, but it's uh, you know this is definitely one of those better better reveals when uh, when you actually see who the guy is pulling the strings and you know like you were saying uh, at the top of this you know no pithy comeback yeah Bond doesn't have anything it's it's actually a, a really well crafted person to see. And speaking of VHS tapes and Goldeneye, like uh, and around the time I was getting into Bond. I'm watching pretty much every single one of them on VHS. I, I watched them all in order from the start on VHS. And on every single Bond VHS of the time that wasn't Goldeneye, Goldeneye was the first trailer. <laughs> so I saw that trailer like more times than I can imagine seeing anything in the world. It's like a less than free guy trailer. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Is it a? Is it the one where he's walking and it's it's against a white backdrop, and then he shoots the letters, and he and they and they have the oh the zero zero, and then he shoots the last letter and it spins into a seven. Is that the trailer for Golden? Uh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, well, it mm-hmm. does sound familiar. I mean, the main thing that I remember from that trailer is there's a bit in it where it shows the part where Bond says to Xenia, "No, no, no." No more foreplay. Yeah. <laughs> and being being a dumb kid at the time, I didn't know what the hell foreplay was. So I thought he was saying foul play. Mm-hmm. And then like a few years later, you learn a thing or two about the birds and the bees, and you see that remember that scene, like, oh mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, see, you learned about foreplay. I learned about Cossacks. See, there's something for <laughs> Michael had the much more fun education. <laughs> yeah, mine was boring as hell, man. <laughs> But yeah, the uh, I I had a couple of those. It was the same series of tapes. I know exactly what you're uh, talking about, and I I still don't know what what got it into my hands, like what the event was. But the first tape that I ever received uh, from the Bond series was Octopussy. So I'm like, well, I'm watching the crap out of Octopussy now, not knowing that. <laughs> well, it's Octopussy. <laughs> you know, there, there there are a lot higher peaks than that one, but I. Uh, yeah, that is one of the Bond movies I've seen more than most. I don't know. I like that one. It's the one Bond movie that I said in the one video that like I can't imagine anyone saying it's their favorite Bond movie. And I got a bunch of comments being like, that's my favorite Bond movie. I was really? like, really? Wow. And uh, actually, yeah. I'd say it's one of the, I'd say behind uh, For Your Eyes Only and Spy Who Loved Me. And that's probably my favorite, third favorite, Roger Moore. It's got a great I opening. It. Uh, I'd probably put Live and Let Die which is like probably more flawed, but it's more fun, I think. Yeah, but it doesn't have a fight on top of a moving plane. It's true. In it, so it but Octopussy doesn't have Yafet Kodo. True, true. You take, you got your pluses and your minuses, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Homer rigorous I, I can see, I can see Yafet Kodo in other movies. I, I can't That's see true. James Bond fighting someone on top of a plane in midair in too many too many other movies this, hmm, i hadn't considered that that's a good counterpoint 
Although that Bond jumping onto the plane, you had to think his thought process was nothing. Just like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm just going to jump onto this plane and uh, we'll just see how this plays out. And it's James Bond, so it always plays out. But Well, I quickly just wanted to, because I mentioned the people being like, Octopus, he's my favorite. Greg, you mentioned License to Kill being a divisive Bond movie. On the recent video I did, which was just the ranking, and I encourage commenters to leave their own, I think License to Kill is the one I've seen the most of people's number one. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Which was like really cool to see. I think maybe from Rush With Love got a bit more um which makes sense it's kind of like the perfect bond film in a lot of ways but i was really it was i don't even have license to kill in my top 10 but it was still really cool to see it like showing up so many times as people's favorite oh it's so weird i wasn't gonna bring this up but now i will and it's so so odd and i'm sure this only applies to me but just growing up i remember when i was at any friend's house any friend it could have been a friend from school a friend from sports this side or the other Every time we'd go through the closet and look at videos, every parent, except my family, every family had a license to kill. And I didn't know what it was, but I'm like, that sounds fun. Oh, I've heard of James Bond. Okay. And it just sort of stuck. Like, I don't know what it was about license to kill. They didn't have, they didn't have uh, uh, Moonraker. They didn't have live and let die. They license to kill right there. Cause maybe no one was, saw it in theaters. They had to get the I mean, tape. That, yeah, might, that might just be a function of it coming out right around the time VHS was really starting yeah, to proliferate. Mm, like, exactly. I think, I think that was like that was 89. That's like the same year as Batman, which is the other mm-hmm. kind of immortal VHS movie. Oh, I got that the, sitting around somewhere. Just the classic, the bat symbol is the yeah. cover. Um, I believe that was the one that also, I didn't, I'm sure there's slight variations on the tape, but the one that opened with a commercial for Diet Coke with Alfred taking yeah. a big swig. And there's there's a cape on the back of the Diet Coke can. Yeah, yeah. It's all, mm-hmm. I think it's also the one where Daffy Duck tells you to get a catalog for Warner Brothers merch because mm. even back then Warner Brothers was deluded about how much people cared about that brand. <laughs> yeah. The new Warner Brothers catalog. Yeah, and then and then he says you can buy uh you can buy ties, you can buy shirts and ties, and then they tie up Bugs Bunny in a rope. That's neckties. I'm sorry, I've seen this way too many times. Oh my god! There's no idea what I'm talking about. It's no clue, no clue. You youngins, you kids, you kids, and your ability to skip commercials. I'm sorry, Greg. You're a withered old man in my eyes. Yeah, get off my lawn. <laughs> oh, cool pick though. I'm also like Sean Bean is just the bee's knees in this movie. He's so good. Yeah, and he's one of his best death scenes and there are many to choose from mm-hmm. <laughs> he basically has two it well kind of three because the beginning but then in, like you think he dies when bond drops him like oh yeah right. and it's like oh no he's still going and he gets another <laughs> glorious death scene mm-hmm. golden eye gives you uh, your money's worth your money's worth a sean bean death cool all, all right. right um why don't we stay in the brosnan era for a little bit Craig, take it away. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Okay. So this one, I was telling you guys earlier, but for everyone listening. So I have to come clean a little bit. I had two choices I was going to pick one from. Uh, one was a rel- relatively safe scene with Red Grant from, from Russia with Love. And I just thought, yeah, everybody likes that movie. Everybody knows about that movie. It would be a kind of a safe pick we could talk about from Russia with Love. Great. Or we could talk about a movie that I know you guys disagree with me, but this is my least favorite Bond movie. I, I 
I really don't like this movie. And uh, I, I can't say that about, I don't think I can say that about any other Bond movie, but uh, the movie is The World Is Not Enough. Now, one of the things that motiv- motivated me to pick this was uh, listening to one of your guys' recent episodes on this podcast when I was listening to uh, the episode of the scenes you like from movies that you don't. And uh, it's strange when I started piecing this together that I don't like The World Is Not Enough, but there are a lot of things in The World Is Not Enough that I do enjoy and that I do like. Now, there are also some really ridiculous things in the movie. Uh, Denise Richards, for one, who is a physicist or something. Her name's Christmas. Uh, and She gets uh, too much hate for this role. She's fine. I think she gets... I don't think she gets enough. I'm kidding. But there's um, way worse. The Bond girl in License to Kill is so much worse that not the not the Carrie Lowell character, the other one who Sanchez's girlfriend. Her performance is way worse than Denise Richards. Oh, I, I would say that a lot of the hate she gets is just it's it's sexist. Like, who's to say a nuclear scientist can't be can't look like Denise Richards? It's, mm-hmm. That's it. That's, this is a we're in a world where that can happen. Yep. And to Bond say otherwise is in that uh, one regard. It's problematic to say otherwise. That's true. I'm walking that one back. <laughs> Denise Richards, you have a defender on this podcast. Michael, um, if I could high five you right now, I would. <laughs> <laughs> My opinion stands, but uh, also the fact that the um, also yeah, the, she only comes once a year. <laughs> very true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying not to laugh too hard. She's only but, uh, named that so they can have that line, and <laughs> exactly, frankly, it was worth exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. It was worth it. <laughs> you know, someone is oh Christmas. Hmm. Okay, I got to work that into a. That name somehow. is no stupider than Holly Goodhead. That's true. That's very true. But and no more awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Then you got the villain Reynard who had shot in the brain. And I think they did they say that he gets shot in the medulla or the medulla oblongata? Because uh, the only other movie that I know the references the medulla oblongata is The Water Boy with Sandler. It makes an alligator's ornery. Exactly. And 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 I and I couldn't help but think, like, again, whoever is writing this movie is probably just watching, okay, medulla oblongata, write that down. Or we're going to work that in somehow. But um, anyways, aside from all that uh, silly stuff, there are some good things that I, I do like about the movie. And one of them, uh, I guess it just culminates with uh, the final confrontation, showdown, so to speak, uh, between Bond and Electra King at the very end. And the cool thing about Electra, I think, is that she's uh, a, a more developed trope. Uh, you guys mentioned before that uh, early in the podcast that uh, there's usually uh, a woman that he gets with and she's either just there for information that she's killed or maybe she's working for the villain and then she's also killed. But um, Electra, she's, uh, she is, she's not even henchman. She's, she's like a co-villain. Uh, is this she's... Sophie Marceau? Is that... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah. we're talking about okay yeah and um she she really is kind of up there with all the plotting with the <clears throat> whose credit is the main villain but you know i think they they both share equal uh credit and it's kind of uh cool in a way because uh this is basically the movie is bond getting hoodwinked like completely not just oh i slept with a girl and then i found out that uh she's not who she seems and well we're just gonna keep going uh they uh uh, you know, they, they kind of establish that he, he really does uh, trust her. And you don't see that 
entirely in, in uh, all the women that uh, Bond gets throughout the series. And uh, not only that, he, he does kill her. I guess this kind of goes back to the uh, revenge theme that we were talking about. But when he finally does kill her, it's so unnecessary. And because uh, she, she's not threatening him. She, well, she she's trying to make the sub go. She's right. ordering the sub to go. He's trying to stop her from doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. But now the sub's going regardless. So like he, she orders it. He, he could have just, you know, clocked her on the head or just done nothing. We're just left. Oh, the sub's on its way, so I better go stop the sub. Um, but uh, but he, he chooses to kill her, uh, and uh, it, I think it just really shows like a, a really vengeful Bond who felt betrayed. Uh, you know, he really gave himself to her. Uh, he trusted he trusted her, and uh, like I said, usually it doesn't happen. And then uh, afterwards, he he goes and uh, you know he kind of has that one last tender moment before he goes and blows up the sub but uh, i think it was really kind of an interesting take on a uh on just how they could handle like a, uh, not just a female villain but just like a female character in the bond movies which you don't see very much um, if, if at all uh, like i said it was just a a more developed uh a more developed trope i think that they used before and you know say what you will about stephanie Marceau. um i liked her in braveheart but uh, that was that was one of the uh, things that I kind of liked about it, and you know, despite the fact that I don't really like the movie, like I said, uh, I liked the uh, impromptu send off for Q, and then you got John Cleese in there. You got to imagine, like I was thinking about this, John Cleese was probably he probably signed his name on the dotted line and thought, "Nice, I got this Q gig wrapped up for the next twenty years if I want to. Mm-hmm. This is going to be like a a new career for me." Well. Uh, uh, sorry, John Cleese, but um, I'm sure he, he's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's okay. I'm he's sure he's okay. Busy writing questionable stuff on Twitter. Yeah, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. As James Woods would tell you, that keeps a man busy. He wouldn't be if he were Q. But uh, and I also like making uh, Emma uh, kind of a central character in this mm-hmm. as well, instead of just bookending M like on either side or just one side. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty cool. So I do want to give credit where credit's due to the world is not enough. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that was kind of my moment that uh, that I liked from from that movie. And you know, just when I was thinking about it, it was like, okay, maybe I do deserve to give this movie another shot. I have seen it a number of times. It's not like I just watched it once and I'm like, oh, throw it in the trash. But yeah, I even even when I first saw it, it came out when I was 14, so it came out in 1999. And even then, I'm like, man, I just. I just don't find this very enjoyable. It's just not a it's not a fun movie for me to watch. It's I'm not like getting all giddy. Even even die another day. I like okay, what am I watching? But still, it was just comically uh, comically bad. But I, I just didn't get that vibe from this. But like I said, I want to give credit where credit's due. So right, like yeah. I mean, as far as the movie itself goes, I get not liking it that much as the Bond movies go. Like. Um, Dan was saying he can't imagine anyone thinking Octopussy is their favorite Bond movie. I, I probably can't imagine anyone thinking The World's Not Enough is their favorite Bond movie either. But I also find it strange for it to be anyone's least favorite Bond movie. Like if I were yes. ranking it, it would probably be like right in the middle because I think there there are things about it that doesn't work. I don't think Michael Apted is quite the right director to be making a James mm-hmm. Bond movie. I don't think he really makes it come together in the way it needs to. Uh, but there's so much good stuff in there. That boat chase at the beginning is awesome. The stuff with Electra, I think, is great. Uh, the scene where he murders Electra. I, first of all, I'm going to defend Bond here for a second. Like, 
having already established that I think Bond killing people in cold blood is awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I think he, I think there, there are perfectly good justifications for what he's doing here. Like, if he just leaves her to her devices, she's, Lord knows what kind of evil stuff she's going to be doing. She's also rich. She might get out of the rap. You can't, you can't let that happen if you're James Bond. Uh, also, M is in the building. Um, yeah, M's... If Electra wakes up, she's bound to kill M. Like she'd probably do that just for revenge. Also, I mean, she's basically challenging him to shoot her through that whole scene. It is set mm-hmm. up. She keeps saying, "You wouldn't kill me, Bond. You would miss, not in cold blood." And he find, when then when he's put to the test, when she ignores his last warning to stop or it's over, she almost. Uh, out of sheer hubris orders the sub down and then bang you you don't get to do that electra See, that's what made me think <laughs> you spoiled <though>. brats <laughs> yeah. that's what made me think though now maybe they could have written another way to have the sub go down regardless of whether she ordered it or not but that's what made me think like would it have been a different scene because I, I do see where you're coming from but would it have been different had they just have him shoot her and without her saying anything, because he was he was just waiting for her to, to to give the order, and who knows, maybe would have killed her regardless. But what if she said nothing? What if she just sit, sat there with the with the mic, just come on, I dare you, and then he just shoots her anyways without saying anything? I, I would mean, agree. Like to be very yeah. clear, if I'm I, I'm talking about this in terms of a James Bond movie in real life, you probably right. shouldn't shoot people who have <laughs> I, already. I, I agree. But yes. that having been I, said, I, I do, I do think that. Uh, her giving the order right before he shoots makes the scene more com- complex and interesting. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that this is kind of a scene where it doesn't give Bond the easy way out. Like a lot of movies, yeah, you have stuff like every superhero movie that gets made these days, they're going to kill the villain at the end, but they have to find some contrived reason why it's not the hero's fault that the he- villain is getting killed. Uh, and here, I-, I like that they don't play that game here. They make Bond make his decision. Um, and it's not something you get in a lot of these other James Bond movies. It's a unique thing within this film. And I think there's a lot about this film that is unique. Uh, that's doing an interesting spin on Bond while staying, you know, more or less within what you expect out of a James Bond movie. Uh, but again, I do agree that the movie itself doesn't come together the way it should. And it, it's not, it doesn't it's the sum of its parts do not add up to a greater whole i just think it i think i just think it des- deserves a little more respect than you're giving it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you know uh i don't know you guys but yeah for, for me it's just like even even the bad ones even the even the ones that you know i think universally people agree uh, oh this is this isn't very good it's either not a very good bond movie itself or it's just not a good film on the whole like we can we can find things in there like you're saying like there's there's we can find what's good about it even even quantum of solace there's there's a couple of things like okay i wouldn't fast forward through that but um i'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you a little bit of credit Dan. but um the uh, if we get into the quantum of solace <laughs> debate we're going to be here for like two more hours i know i know i'll, I'll wrap this up but yeah i just um, you know m- maybe i'll come back maybe maybe one day dan you can have a podcast like a revisiting podcast and and i'll i'll revisit the world is not enough but yeah i i have watched it a few times and each time i'm just like i'm trying i'm, tr- I'm trying i'm trying to find this uh, uh, to be an enjoyable movie and uh, just even just at a and an entertaining popcorn i just want to have fun standpoint and it's just 
there's something about it. Just something that feels cold and stale that that I don't just, get from from other Bond movies. I'm just, with you, just, Greg. Just I consider kind of this. Too. Just consider this, guys. Last last word on this. When the <laughs> yeah. when that boat does that jump, there is no slide whistle to be found. <laughs> That's game all I'm set, saying. Game set match, Michael. <laughs> well, I, I do want to quickly say, not related to this scene, but you mentioned, Greg, the uh, the Q scene, which is interesting because it ends up being Q's last appearance because Desmond Llewellyn passed away shortly or thereafter in a car accident, of all things. Yeah. Um, but I find that scene very affecting, which is weird because, like, taken on its own, it's kind of a weird scene. Like, him being lowered into the floor is rather morbid, all the more so because he did pass away. But that moment where Bond says you're not planning on retiring anytime soon, are you? And he seems genuinely like he really doesn't want him to go. I find that affecting in a way that a Bond movie will probably never be again in so much as like, especially if you grow up watching them and like just these actors who you see in every movie. And also once you start paying attention to the credits, like the fact that it's the same composer for a lot of them, it's the same cinematographers, same stunt people. Like they were in a bizarre way, like these this weird family of sorts that you got used to seeing that I just don't see happening, especially when it's like major stars in some of these roles, like Ben Wishaw is probably a much better actor than Desmond Llewellyn is, but I will never care about his cue the same way I do the real cue. And that's partly could be my issues with those movies themselves. But I think it's more the fact that like Desmond Llewellyn being this, like you didn't see him in other movies really, but he was this recognizable face that you always were happy to see in these. And then for him to be gone, uh, I don't know. It matters in a way that like, it's it's more than just like a character we don't like not being in these movies anymore. It feels a little different. Cause I was even thinking about this in regards to like people like Hans Zimmer coming in to do the score for No Time to Die. And no disrespect to Hans Zimmer, he's very good at what he does, but just bringing in, you know, the, best new composer like I like that David Arnold was the series composer for a while like he was the Bond guy and you know before him it's somebody else and just I don't know there's a sense of a communal thing to Bond that I feel like is going away now yeah I mean the closest we've gotten since then was what was going on with Judy Dench and Skyfall where they basically spent a whole movie doing that kind of thing to send off a supporting character which was excessive they were able to do it all in one scene and mm-hmm. with q who had been with the series much longer but yeah and i don't know if i maybe you guys know and i don't but i, I would assume that you know even the casual just casual uh bond fans who might be just visiting the series for the first time they might be thinking oh you know that actor desmond Llewellyn, he probably retired or passed away he got sick but it, it looks like it's set up to kind of have that be his exit uh not knowing that he die in a car crash he was he wasn't dying of some some prolonged illness he was killed in a car crash and i don't know if they were planning on having him return for die another day at all uh but so uh, like they were kind of setting it up so that he could come back or not come back the mm -hmm. idea was that until he was ready to retire john cleese would just kind of be an assistant and then over the course of a couple movies he would be ready to take over uh, but I also think they definitely filmed that scene so that I think the idea was that every movie going forward, Q, they would treat it like it was Q's last, so to speak, which I don't know. That seems like a weird thing to do, but. Uh, kind of worked for them in this one case yeah. in a very morbid way. Yeah. I, you took the words out of my mouth, I was going to say, in a very morbid way. It really, really nailed it. But rest in peace, Desmond Llewellyn. 
mm-hmm. longest sort of tenure of any single cast member from from rush with love to the world is not enough mm-hmm. impressive all so, right okay well i got the i got the world is not enough out of my system but What's who up? knows I, I, when i revisit this i'll let all you guys know please do sounds good Okay, let's move to our last uh, bond in the in the podcast, which is Daniel Craig's bond. So we're going to talk about Casino Royale. Uh, the scene that I I was trying to think of a good scene to pick, and the one the one that I came up with is one of the moments I think that really made me get into the movie when I when I first saw it, and that's the scene where James Bond and Vesper, uh, played by Eva Green, are going to their hotel they're going to go uh to the poker game they get the whole plot set up at the poker game so they go to the hotel and in the car on the way there she's she's like his contact and my sixth contact and she's giving him all the all the details on his background and this is this is going to be a secret identity while he's there and, and so on and then when they get to the hotel desk he just says yeah, I'm James Bond. Uh, the reservation will be under beach. <laughs> and then she, and he just leaves her like, you asshole. Are you? <laughs> like he just blew up everything that I did. And, and I like it because for one thing, I think it's, it's an interesting way to say, it's almost like his introduction to the series. It's like, yeah, I am James Bond. I'm here. Almost in that same George Lazenby way that you were talking about before, Greg, right? and Dan so it's like I am James Bond this is this is me and uh and I'm now taking on the series for you you gotta hold your nose when you're saying it though you have to hold your nose when doing your George Lazenby impression y'all are dicks (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry I I interrupted you I apologize I also think it's really good for establishing this kind of back and forth relationship that the two of them are going to have throughout the movie um where she's just she's just so taken aback by what he did and and it's like this kind of playful antagonism that uh that they build between the two of them and then of course when she confronts him about it right after that he has all these justifications like all these reasons for it but in reality he just is wants to be bold right he just wants to be bold and and uh, a little bit arrogant and and that's really the reason he did it um and i just I just really like that scene because it kind of sets up a, you know, we always think of Daniel Craig as, I think his persona is that he's a, the rough and tumble bond, right? Like he's, he's kind of the, the gruesome, gritty, get down in the dirt bond. But I think there's a lot of playfulness to him in Casino Royale. And I think this scene highlights that quite a bit. Uh, and it's one of the things that drew me to, to Casino Royale because I, Personally, I know you guys have some reservations about the about the Craig era, but personally, I really love Casino Royale. I think it does a lot of things right, and it plays with the tropes of the series in an interesting way that just that just works for me. I think you're kind of burying the lead here. Like the guy walks up to the 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 hotel desk, and he says his first name and then his last name like a normal human being would, instead of That's saying. Right. Bond, James Bond, Bond. Bond. A hotel desk is like a place where it's actually appropriate to do that because there you get to look it up by last name. <laughs> and yet uh, the, the film is, you know, it's saving that up for that final shot. Right. But 
that, that's what point. really jumped out to me about that scene personally he but <laughs> he didn't say it the right way that's fair yeah and that there well, is something can... to that too right it's like this is james bond but we're gonna be a little different now right like it... Yeah, he's not uh, quite there yet. I think that it's, was a conscious choice, actually. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, like it, the mm-hmm. whole movie is it's doing the reboot thing. I don't personally like that. That is not what I want from a James right. Bond movie. But if they're going to do it, I think they mostly do it right, where they you know lead up to the point where he says his name correctly, and there's kind of like three stages of how he orders his drink, and it kind of it you, you the audience knows where it was what's up to when it's doing that um and uh yeah that, that's definitely part of it yeah i mean it's funny t- uh to kind of piggyback on michael's point about like mixed feelings about it being a reboot but also acknowledging that like it's pretty good it, it's that's yeah. the thing with casino Royale. it's like ah i mean and especially if it had been just that movie that did that and then the rest were kind of traditional bonds i think it would stand out in some ways it would stand out more because it would be the only one but it would also just feel less i don't know overbearing in a way but like the whole craig era has been about like ah but he isn't really james bond yet and then the next one's like oh but he's not james bond anymore and it's like good god and and then it's like well it's you're you're getting pretty long in the tooth guy yeah Yeah. you've been around too long wait what we've only been here for six movies yeah (laughs) oh but um you know, it's funny, Ian, you highlighted this scene before I saw uh, the the document you used for these these things. I was going to also pick a scene from Casino Royale right before this, which is when they're driving up and Bond's going through the contact and he, you know, she's supposed to be posing as his wife. And he says, your name is Stephanie Broadchest. And she tries to grab the folder. It's like, it is not. You're gonna have to trust me on this, which is clearly a tongue in cheek reference of like the the sexy pun names for bond girls but i like that while it's like an obvious sort of poking fun at the series it's not super obnoxious and in your face about it like i compare it to like in skyfall when q's like were you expecting an exploding pen we don't go in for that anymore it's like i'm sorry that the exploding pen is awesome and cool and nothing in this movie is that good but here we are but um it's it's more subtle it's also genuinely funny and the actors play it well and it serves purpose in the narrative because it helps develop their sort of romantic banter and chemistry and make us like them more as a couple. And just thinking like, you know, the Craig films and especially Skyfall have been so overt about making these um, really grand sort of clear nods that just like are screaming at even the most casual of Bond fans. And the best ones are actually a lot more low key and small and it goes back to michael's point about goldeneye you know uh, speaking back to series tropes without having to stop to you know go for yucks for the audience so right yeah so the, the irony there is her, her name is vesper lind that is very much a weird bond girl name like it's not yeah, quite that's really not quite that's not quite you know holly goodhead level but uh it, it it's still a weird name i mean it the name comes from the book of course like most a lot of these names actually do come from the books like ian, ian fleming was just a degenerate but um a weird horny freak yeah he's, thank uh, god he, for him he, 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 the more you look into that guy's background the more the more problematic aspects of the series are very much uh manifestations of his id like they at least make more sense when you know like okay that does explain a lot <laughs> <laughs> So, 
good scene though i also like it's like a little moment but when the i think it's in the same scene towards the end like the the hotel receptionist or something like you know have a nice day or enjoy your stay or something and he says very politely back i will thank you and it's just it, it's such a deliberate choice to play it like that friendly in a way that does stand out and always just kind of like i don't know i have no justification for it being like an interesting or like introspective choice i just think it's neat i just like when, that he's very clearly having fun playing james bond here which you definitely see him lose throughout the rest of his movies, um, especially in the last, hopefully not in the, this next one. Maybe he gives it his all because it's his last one, but. Yeah, like the weird thing about this one is it's basically the only Bond movie where they are consciously making a final Bond movie for the, its actor. Like all the other mm-hmm. Bond actors kind of went out with a whimper, but here they are kind of giving him this grand send off, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing. Uh, it, that that's something that could go wrong very easily, but uh, that is what kind of makes that movie stand out as a thing. Well, if I were Daniel Craig, I'd just say, "Hey guys, I'm down for one more. If uh, if you are, let's do it. Just be a <laughs> be an entire troll about the whole thing. Kind of like a Kiefer Sutherland when he uh, when he like retired from 24, and they had like before the ser- before that season started, he had this whole thing like, "I want to thank you fans." for making 24 what it is and like two years later they just come out with another season all right whatever but yeah uh to your point though uh ian i yeah i think that uh it's they, they do have uh bond investor do have that chemistry that you man i don't know i can't name another bond movie where where uh you know you just have you have his character and the the leading lady just really really hit it out of the park especially when you compare it to the next one quantum of solace where they're <laughs> like what they don't even <laughs> seem to like each other yeah you know? they're just kind of yeah, there like they, they um, would never kill off the bond girl at the end of any other bond movie mm-hmm. ever yeah there, there are a lot of uh uh this is cyberbullying i'm just gonna say yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> uh that, that that was a great little great little dig but yeah it was uh those uh those two they really knock it out of the park and they, they really did help make, in my opinion, I, I really, really enjoyed Casino Royale. So I didn't know this, but it, from what, uh, from what it sounds like. So uh, Daniel and Michael, you guys aren't fans of the, uh, the Craig era. I take it. We have issues with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'll be upfront. Like Which I loved was... Skyfall. Like a lot of fans did when it came out. And then the more I watched it, the more I'm like, the more I explained to him why he was wrong about that, <laughs> the more he came to came around. I mean, you definitely like you made your case, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. And the more I watch, I'm like, oh, there's a lot here. Um, honestly, I think one of the big things with Skyfall was just realizing like the ending makes no sense because it's like Bond's back, and it's like he failed at everything. He did not do a single thing right. This I'd probably give that movie like a half star bump if just M lived at the end. If Bond succeeded at the one thing that he needed to succeed at, because at least then the ending of like I'm still awesome and cool would make sense. I mean, he did succeed at killing the bad guy but yeah but at that point like he he did it in a very boring way but it's true and the bad guy had accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish so it's kind of that's that's the only one of the bad guys that daniel craig actually succeeded at killing himself because the (laughs) gets popped by that other guy uh i mean he he basically sets up the guy in quantum assault to be killed but he is technically killed by someone else he fails to murder uh, Blofeld at the end, which is just a dumb thing to do. Like Roger Moore totally would have plugged that guy. 
So he's got yeah, that if Daniel Craig was smart, he could have avoided this whole no time to die nonsense. <laughs> well, I think yeah, we I went mean, through I... we went through the Let's five. Go ahead, sorry, uh, Ian. Well, we've gone through the five important bonds, right? So oh, my god. <laughs> the, the five hey, heavy you had a chance to bring up his Majesty's Secret Service. You chose not to. You chose to go. I with figured I'd discuss the movie enough. <laughs> <laughs> people don't need to hear me talk about that movie anymore they need to hear me talk about moonraker <laughs> in all seriousness i do actually love secret service i do think it's a great movie too uh yeah i mean like i i i clown on that movie because i i want to like it more than i do like the the ingredients are all there it's just and i'm saying this with complete i'm not joking lazenby kills that movie for me is the one thing about that movie that just you, you can't you can't have a perfect Bond movie if the Bond is not what you want Bond to be. That's, that's just fair. how I feel. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. Um, and it's like it's used to be kind of my like one sticking point. And I don't know if it's just Stockholm syndrome that the more I just watch the movie, the more I'm just I get used to him, and I'm like, ah, he's actually okay. Um, it might be, but and like um, that is the big reason why I'm so angry at George Lazenby's lazenbiness it's just he i think he ruined what could have been what should be what you think what i think what actually should be the best bond movie but for me it, it, he just he ruins it that's 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 where i'm coming from do you think if it's the same movie but with connery in it it's the best i'm not sure connery would have been right for it either um mm. like i almost that one actually is one that daniel craig would be suited for in some ways mm-hmm. um or Dalton. Dalton would be the perfect bond for that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and just otherwise, like, I don't know, something about that that ending, like, I know you find that ending very touching. Personally, I look at it more cynically. To me, that's just kind of a return to the status quo. Mm-hmm. Like, it's what it was always going to be. I frankly think the whole Vesper Lynch death is a bit more impactful for me. Uh, especially, like, in the original Casino Royale book, where like there, there's no redemption for Vesperlin in that book. The, the last line of that book is the bitch is dead. It just ends there. There's no like That's scene where he goes and gets vengeance. <laughs> he's just, he's just done, done with it. He's like, move, moves on. Well, I mean, I think we could get into this for a while. I think that, you know, you make a fair point, but I think what makes the majesty death for me more impactful is that it doesn't, feel like at least in the context of the movies it's setting up his character arc where it's like vesper's death is sad but it's not what you leave the movie with you leave with like and now he's james bond whereas like majesty it just it's abrupt and and it's foreshadowed really heavily like throughout the film but it still kind of feels like it just blindsides you and then it's just over and like yeah it does feel like it's supposed to be resetting to you know status quo but it also as a viewer i just feel like I'm not ready to go to that status quo just yet. Like it, you know, it just feels like it's just something's just been like ripped away and it's like, ah, oh, back to normal. I'm like, right. Eh. And yeah, I, I, in the books, like Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the third from last Bond book. In some ways, I think it was, those books never re- did recover. They, they really kind of do. Really? Uh, go from there on forth. They're kind of, the, the last two Bond books are You Only Live Twice and... Uh, the man with the golden gun and they are weird uh especially <laughs> you only live twice which is basically bond in a state of grief for the whole book and going around japan being sad and uh just weirdness ensuing 
Um, it's uh, it's very much it's probably the most meditative James Bond fiction there is. Um, and it's not it also, reflected in the film. <laughs> no, no, it's not. The, the, that, that's the one like that's probably the first Bond movie where they completely just chuck the book. Um, although I think there are actually elements of it that are rumored to be involved in uh, No Time to Die. Like, I think the villain in it is called Shatterhand, which is a name from that book. So, well, that was the rumored title for a while. And I think it's a much cooler title than No Time to Die, personally. Yeah, it is. I think I can kind of see why they didn't want to market that. But I just hate like die in titles for Bond movies. It's just, I don't know. And they're running out, you know, like that's true. (laughs) At this point, they're really like, Quantum of Solace, I think, was the last one taken from Ian Fleming. And that uh, was a stretch. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that means to this day, but <laughs> um, and uh, so it, when they're not taking it from Ian Fleming, they're just making up Bond-sounding things in a way that is getting a bit desperate, but I'm not really sure there's a better solution, so. Well, I'll tell you, Daniel, um, I, uh, I certainly don't dislike uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's just kind of fun piling on. Um, just to it's fun to bully go. me. Yeah, you're right. I but get it. I, I will say that that does <laughs> have a special place in my heart because uh, yeah, about a decade ago, I was going through like a really rough patch, and it was one of those nights where you kind of wake up and and you just can't go back to sleep. You know, it's two a.m. You know, like I'm up, my brain's going. I'm I'm I'm. This is it for the day. And I just went into the other room and I turned on the TV and it was right right at the at the gun at uh, the uh, title of uh unimagined secret service and i watched the entire damn thing and i felt so much better i'm like oh my god this is great and nice. uh yeah i kind of picked up my day and then I, I have to say it has nothing to do with any of our discussions about bond but it it gets me right here right there it has a holds a special place in my heart so that's a, that's my wink and a nod to you i just like the skiing yeah, the that too pretty dope. the skiing is also fun it's, it's all it right. I, I, I'd prefer the ski scene and for your eyes only, but. This, that ski scene is also really cool. And I, I think it has a bit too much gags in it for me personally. Um, it also doesn't have a scene where a guy gets flung off a cliff and they hold on him falling for like a minute. Like it's so long. <laughs> and then there's I, just a tiny thud at the end. That's cinema. It, it, it does not have that. <laughs> You're correct. And it's from, he, he like, he takes a candle holder and he makes the guy stumble back through a window and then off the cliff, if I remember correctly. So that church must have been built like right on the edge of a cliff, which that doesn't sound uh, that doesn't sound safe to me. People build yeah. churches in stupider places than that. <laughs> That's a pretty stupid place. Mm. Just stuff like that might happen. You know, right. do you guys have any final word on? On James Bond, or No Time to Die, or or anything. I'm, I'm sure we have. We all could go on for for hours, but I hope it's good. Yeah, I'm I'm keeping my expectations low so that I can be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean, I'm just happy to see the, the two well. the two hour forty minute thing is a red flag to me, though. I think they might just this. I just, I just don't trust the Daniel Craig era writers, but. Hope springs eternal. Uh, See, I actually had this thought the other day. Where I was like, I wish I could send, if I could send anybody to the premiere other than myself, I would send Michael 
so you can tell me if the gun barrels at the beginning or not because that's like my main thing or is like they're gonna screw me on that yeah don't, don't get me started i really like how they had it at the very end of quantum of solace oh my god and that note uh, i'm just getting it up no i'm just kidding <laughs> but okay. it's less egregious than skyfall but so i can kind of understand the argument i don't agree with it but i understand the argument that quantum picks up right after uh casino royale so i can kind of maybe see the argument there for that the gun barrel being at the end but i mean it's, it's dumb that they're even doing that but skyfall it makes no sense like they've already done the bookend of the first two it's, it's, I, I need to stop <laughs> 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 Yeah, Ian, you made a mistake okay. hosting a Bond episode and bringing this specific panel. I suppose. Well, I think we I think we covered Bond pretty well. This is gonna definitely gonna be our longest episode. There's no doubt about that. But uh, yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed it. And if you're going to see the movie, send us a send us a message and let us know what you thought of it and what your favorite Bonds and favorite Bond moments are. Um, Greg and Michael. Thanks for stopping by. Do you guys have anything you want to promote? Not the world is not enough. I'm kidding. <laughs> but. It's usually things you're involved with, Greg. Oh, Come oh on. got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not Michael Apted. All right. I'll, I'll go ahead and do my standard plugs. Um, I run a amateur movie blog, uh, the movie vampire at wordpress.wordpress.com. Uh, not very well it's not very widely read, but yeah, you know, I put my stuff there anyway. Uh, I just put up my review of the card counter there. Uh, uh, shortly after this uh, post, I should be putting up my review of uh, Titan. And uh, then later this month, I'll certainly be having a review of uh, No Time to Die up there. Uh, if you want to see my reviews in a more timely manner, I am on Letterboxd, uh, profile name, uh, The Movie Vampire. Don't ask me what that means. It's just I, I, every time I say any of these things, I have to preface the, the, the name means nothing. And I also I tweet at at the movie vampire. Uh, so uh, that, that's my that's my stuff. Right on. You could always have like I was trying to think about the movie vampire and like, I don't know, just like slogans you can add to it and something like where I suck the films or something, but I don't know. <laughs> Just, it's, you can't really, uh, you know. I am, I am very done leaning into that name. It's, it's strictly <laughs> legacy name at this point. Where, where I suck the films. I was just like, well, I can't. I mean, what does a vampire do? He sucks on things. Like films. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> These are just stray thoughts I had after we recorded one day. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll just remind our viewers that it is well past midnight where Dan is right now. Oh, um, yeah. One in the morning, <laughs> baby. Oh, man. All it's, right. Uh, first uh, all time zones uh, podcast. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Dan, you put up the your complete ranking of the James Bond. So if you want more Bond, uh, go to Eyebrow Cinema. And yeah, people are already there. calling for the two and a half hour cut of your video. So 
which to be fair, part of it was two and a half hours because I would start talking and I'm like, I sound like an idiot and stop and rephrase what I had just said. So you don't want that cut. <laughs> Release the Daniel cut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm protecting R- you from myself. The R-rated cut, head's exploding. I mean, to be fair, I could just sprinkle in like that shot every like 90 seconds or something. That'd be fun. <laughs> See what nope. affects people. We'll go to Eyebrow Cinema, check that out. Uh, go to cinema underscore seconds on Twitter and send us a message about your favorite Bond moments. And have fun at uh, No Time to Die. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.